Welcome to the 24-week lecture series by Dr. Avraham Giliotti, Dreams, Visions, and Near-Death Experiences Compared to the End-Time Prophecy of Isaiah. This is Lecture 3, Identifying God's End-Time Servant. This is our third lecture. The first one we discussed the bad news from Isaiah, mostly. The second lecture was about uh, looking into Spencer's visions of glory and particularly the fellowship of the suffering of Christ and how that ties into Isaiah with the idea of the, the suffering proxy savior under the terms of the Davidic covenant, which is done on many levels, on three different levels in fact. That of Christ, that of the seraphim, and that of those who are called sons and servants in the book of Isaiah. Today, we're going to discuss something that is not told in dreams, visions, and near-death experiences, except a very few, and those who have seen it seem to be under the command not, not to, to share it, such as Nephi. When he gets to the point that he can't say any more, he uh, says, John the Revelator will show the rest, but he himself quotes Isaiah. We mentioned that last time, to say what he wants to say. And the two chapters he quotes from Isaiah, 48 and 49, which are the highlight, basically, or part of the highlight of, of the servant's mission. The servant in chapter 49. So today, we're going to discuss mostly things that are not in Isaiah about the servant to show the support that other Hebrew prophets give for the idea of such a person. And we're going to start off with identifying the servant, the idea behind today's lecture. And before we start, I want to, uh, again, express a caution because it's a real Gentile approach to, to just take a scripture and proof text it, or use that as a proof text to support what you believe. And that doesn't work. That's taking things out of context. Jews don't do that. They respect the word of God. They say, why is it saying this way? They analyze it, and we mentioned that also before. And so Nephi sees that, especially since he's seen the Gentiles, us, in vision. He also bewails that fact. This is from 3 Nephi 23, 1 through 3, where Jesus, after quoting from Isaiah, gives two keys for understanding Isaiah. And then we'll get to Nephi. Behold, I say unto you that you ought to search these things, these words. Hebrew is the same word. Yea, a commandment I give unto you that you search these things or these words diligently, for great are the words of Isaiah. For surely he spake as touching all things concerning my people, which are of the house of Israel. Therefore it must needs be that he must also speak unto the Gentiles. And all things that he spake have been and shall be, even according to the words which he spake. All right, so there are two keys. The first one is searching, searching diligently, because without that, there's no way you're going to understand Isaiah. Only about 10% of the meaning is on the surface. So you need to get into the mechanics of how Isaiah prophesies. The manner of the Jews is, is the key that uh, Nephi gives in 2 Nephi 25. The manner of the Jews, or the way that the Jews study and analyze, they're all into analysis. They're not into just looking for support for what they believe and using the scriptures as a proof text. They never do that. 
They respect the word of God too much. The second key is that all things that he spake have been and shall be, and that means that you can take the book of Isaiah as something relating to his own day and also something relating to the end time. That was taught to me in rabbinic school in, on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And uh, the rabbi said, you can, you, know, you can interpret it on two different levels, the historical and the apocalyptic or the end time. I said, how do you know that? He said, it's a tradition among us. We don't have proof. Well, I found the proof. Well, I've shown the proof, but I discovered the proof during my doctoral program at BYU with my professor from Toronto, Roland K. Harrison, where I studied also. And um, it was in a literary structure that was, appears from Brownlee's, uh, a colleague of, of, uh, of R.K. Harrison, who noticed in the Dead Sea Scroll of Isaiah certain peculiarities that showed that the first 33 chapters of Isaiah parallel the second 33, and each top divides into seven parts. Those seven parts parallel each other. The first parallels the first, and so forth. And what I found, that it was not just a mechanical structure, as they had supposed, but that it built an entire prophecy and theology from one unit of material to the next. It established an idea in the first part of the first half that it built upon in the first part of the second half, which became the starting point for the second part in the first half, which established its own premise that it developed further in the second part of the second half, which became the starting point for the third part of the first half. You get the idea? And so it kept on building to the seventh part of the second half of the book of Isaiah. Then I went 10 years beyond my doctoral thesis of postdoctoral work on that very same literary structure, a holistic structure that governed the entire context of the book of Isaiah. And it is what's called a synchronous structure, which is different from a linear structure. A linear structure, which Isaiah also has, he has numerous structures layered one upon the other throughout his book, like from one end of the book to the other. You can read about them in my book, Isaiah Decoded. But on top of that, those linear structures is this synchronous structure, this huge complex synchronous structure. Synchronous means that everything relates all at once. And the setting or the, the context of that structure is the end time. So Isaiah's entire book, even biographical material, is an allegory for something in the end time. And as I mentioned to you before, I, I discovered 30, 30 ancient events that Isaiah predicts new versions of for the end time. And those 30 events, he connects domino fashion throughout his book. He'll give a couple of domino pieces here, a couple here, and a couple there. And then until you put them all together, you don't get it. You'll never get it. So it's totally a challenge and necessary to search diligently the words of Isaiah, even with the literary tools that I provide in my books. All things that he spake have been and shall be, even according to the words which he spake. Let me go on to... Uh, Nephi, giving his two keys in uh, 2 Nephi 25, 4 through 8, Hearken, O my people, which are the house of Israel, and give ear unto my words, for because the words of Isaiah are not plain unto you, nevertheless they are plain unto all those that are filled with the spirit of prophecy. As we know from the book of Revelation, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You cannot know that Jesus is the, the Savior of the world or the, the, the Savior of his people 
uh, unless it is given to you by the, by the gift of the Holy Ghost or by the Holy Ghost. But I give unto you a prophecy according to the Spirit which is in me, wherefore I shall prophesy according to the plainness which has been with me from the time that I came out from Jerusalem with my Father. For, I, for behold, my soul delighteth in plainness unto my people that they may learn. And that is the contrast or difference between Nephi speaking and Isaiah speaking. Isaiah is not plain. But once you figure out the mechanics of it, uh, which you'll need the manner of the Jews for, which he discusses next, then the Spirit can bear witness to you that what he's saying or what you're discovering is true. But the Spirit cannot witness to you something that's not true. So the more you delve into the book of Isaiah on the right path and analyze it and search it diligently, then the Holy Spirit can testify more and more and more. And that's how it works. See, my soul delighteth in the words of Isaiah, for I came out from Jerusalem, and my eyes have beheld the things of the Jews. And I know that the Jews do understand the things of the prophets, and there is none other people that understand the things which are spoken unto the Jews like unto them, save it be that they are taught after the manner of the things of the Jews. So what is this manner of the Jews? Well, I studied rabbinic school, and we, we basically analyzed different levels of meaning and so forth. And I try to, to do that in my books, to, to use the manner of the Jews in interpreting Isaiah, because without that, you cannot do that. And that's, so, you know, that's in my books. I go into great detail in my books about that. So if you want to know about that, look it up there. But behold, I, Nephi, have not taught my children after the manner of the Jews. But behold, I myself have dwelt at Jerusalem, wherefore I know concerning the regions round about. Why is that important? He's dwelt there. He knows about the regions round about. What's that got to do with anything? Because Isaiah uses all of the ancient Near Eastern literary structures that existed from down in Egypt, from Mesopotamia, from the land of Canaan, from... All the, the surrounding countries had their own literary traditions, and he borrows those literary patterns and transforms them into Hebrew literary patterns to convey a Hebrew prophetic message. 7. But behold, I proceed with my own prophecy according to my plainness, in the which I know that no man can err. Nevertheless, in the days of the prophecies of Isaiah shall be fulfilled, men shall know of a surety at the times when they come to pass. You mean we can just wait until the time they're being fulfilled and then we'll know for sure? No, because if we don't know what they are, how do we know anything? Right? So if we learn the prophecies of Isaiah now, and what they're all about, not just the prediction of events, but also the theology that's embedded in the book of Isaiah, which is the fullness of the gospel, then, because Isaiah spoke as touching all things concerning his people, it means past, present, future, and also the fullness of the gospel. At the times when they shall come to pass. So if we get a handle on Isaiah and pay the price of doing so, keep Jesus' commandment, I assure you it's like a reawakening. It's almost like conversion to the gospel all over again. And those who've done it, that's what they tell me. And then all the scriptures suddenly begin to make sense in the context of Isaiah. Verse 8, Wherefore they are worse unto the children of men, and he that supposeth they are not, unto them will I speak particularly and confine the words unto mine own people. So Nephi is really concerned about his own posterity, but, you know, they're going to intermingle with the Gentiles or the Ephraimites who have assimilated into the Gentiles, which we are. 
And so he, met, he goes into us too and, and, and talks to us and, and what we're going to do. But he's most concerned about his descendants, of course. For I know that they shall be of great worth unto them in the last days, for in that day they shall understand them. Wherefore, for their good have I written them. And notice he's not saying the house of Israel or the Gentile. He's saying the children of men. What is that? Why does he use that expression? Because this is going to be a universal thing. The words of Isaiah, believe me, are going to be understood worldwide. That's what he's saying. He says it, and it's going to happen. He saw it happen. How's that going to happen? Think about it. Now, this is what I was leading up to before about the Gentiles and their proof texting. Second Nephi 9.28. Oh, that cunning plan of the evil one, or the vainness and the frailties and the foolishness of men. Why would he use language like this unless it was something really serious? You know, he's, he's a positive person. He's not into condemning and criticizing everybody. When they are learned, they think they are wise, and they hearken not unto the counsels of God. For they set it aside, supposing they know of themselves. Wherefore their wisdom is foolishness, and the profit of them nothing, and they shall perish. They think they know of themselves. That is, so, that is such a Gentile approach. The Gentiles, or us too, including us, Latter-day Saints, come to a prophecy and just put any wild interpretation on it and think, well, that fits. Uh, that, and somebody publishes it in a book, you know. And then somebody quotes that person because he must know, you know, we respect him. And then others quote that and pretty soon that's gospel. And it's all built on a sandy foundation. It holds no water. You ask for examples of precepts of men. That's how precepts of men start. Nephi's caution. So we'll see more of that. In this class, hopefully, one of the things you learn is, you know, if you can't show it, don't say it, as we mentioned before. Before Nephi closes shop in 2 Nephi, he gives this last great lament. I, Nephi, cannot say more. The Spirit stoppeth my utterance. And I'm left to mourn because of the unbelief and the wickedness and the ignorance and the stiff-neckedness of men. Women, too. For they will not search knowledge nor understand great knowledge when it is given unto them in plainness, even as plain as word can be. Well, that's one of the things I've tried to take this complex book of Isaiah, to analyze it, and to present it in as plain a rendering as possible. And it took me about 10 books to do so. But each one nuances some part of Isaiah's message. So that by the time you get through, you've got a handle on Isaiah. I promise you, you will understand Isaiah with those books. Now, today we're going to discuss the Latter-day David from non-Isaiah sources, starting with Joseph Smith. The Latter-day David or the Servant, I published all of this back in 1982. And since then, the idea of a servant has spread because nobody in those days talked about it. Uh, Dwayne Crowther had a book, Prophecy Key to the Future. He mentioned the Latter-day David briefly, quoting from one or two Old Testament prophets, which you're going to quote tonight also. But gradually that idea has taken hold because it's there. And some people feel really threatened by that idea for some reason. Kind of like the Pharisees were threatened by John the Baptist and Christ. 
because there might be a new idea that they you know, haven't thought about or they haven't bothered to look into. And if you don't search the prophecies of Isaiah, then yeah, that would fit you know, that mold. So, but Joseph Smith understood perfectly this individual, who he was. Christ in the days of his flesh proposed to make a covenant with them, speaking of the Jews, but they rejected him and his counsels or proposals, and consequence thereof they were broken off. And no covenant was made with them at that time. But their unbelief has not rendered the promise of God to none effect. Paul talks about that unbelief in Romans 11. And he talks about Gentiles being grafted in, the wild branches, and later on the Gentiles get a little you know, arrogant, and then the natural branches are grafted in again, the same as in Jacob 5, Zenos' allegory, the olive tree. For there was another day limited in David. In other words, there was a time period in which this David does his thing. And that is the time when the Jews come in to the gospel and accept it. And that's all through the Book of Mormon. It's in Isaiah. We'll hopefully get to some major parts of that in this lecture series, which was the Davis power. And the Davis power has not happened yet, but that is the end time. It's the time when the Great and the Bible Church in the Book of Mormon is making war upon the saints, and the power of God comes down upon the saints and upon the covenant people of the Lord. That is that time period, the day of powers. It's mentioned first in the Book of Psalms. Look it up. Look up day of power in its different instances in the scriptures, and you can get an overview of what that's about. And then his people, Israel, would be a willing people, and he would write his law in their hearts and print it in their thoughts. Their sins and their iniquities he would remember no more. In other words, the atonement of Christ finally reaches the Jews and the ten tribes and, and Lehi's descent, all the covenant people of the house of Israel come in at that time, at the same time, into the Lord's covenant. The Book of Mormon is full of it. Here's another one from Joseph Smith, also the teachers of the prophet Joseph Smith. Although David was a king, he never did obtain the spirit and power of Elijah. And the fullness of the priesthood, well, what is that? What's the spirit and power of Elijah? You know, DNC 132 tells us that David fell from his exaltation. What does that mean? It means he had his exaltation. He had his calling election made sure. And now it was going to be this next test to take him to the seraph level, as Isaiah calls it, or the level of a translated being, or the spirit and power of Elijah, who was a translated being, which many others attained right from the time of Adam. Notably, we're familiar with Elijah and Moses and Enoch and the three Nephites and John the Revelator. That is the fullness of the priesthood after the holy order of God is that fullness of the priesthood which we don't have currently in the church. And the priesthood that he received and the throne and kingdom of David is to be taken from him and given to another by the name of David in the last days raised up out of his lineage. In other words, not Christ. Not Joseph Smith. His name is David. Not John the Revelator. And there are those who latch on to the servant idea and run with it, you know, and just put their own spin on it and create confusion in people's minds. Some will say, 
oh, I like Gileadi a lot, but there's one thing I disagree with, and that's the ser his interpretation of the servant. Oh, really? Well, then you haven't read Gileadi for sure, because in my book, The Literary Message of Isaiah and the other books, it's an open and shut case. There's only one interpretation of who the servant is, and there is the literary evidence to show it. Tons of it. So you can't pick and choose and do your Gentile thing on this, any part of Isaiah. You know? You can't use it as a proof text for what you think it is. That's shallow and misleading, and for that you'll be held responsible. Here's Orson Hyde's dedicatory prayer given on the 24th of October, my birthday, uh, except 99 years earlier, in, in 1841. Part of his prayer on the Mount of Olives. Thou, O Lord, didst once move upon the heart of Cyrus to show favor unto Jerusalem and her children. Do thou now be pleased to inspire the hearts of kings and the powers of the earth to look with a friendly eye toward this place and with a desire to see thy righteous purposes executed thereto. Let them know that it is thy good pleasure to restore the kingdom unto Israel, raise up Jerusalem as its capital, and constitute her people a distinct nation and government with David thy servant, even the descendant of David from the loins of David, ancient David, to be their king. So you can see where Orson Hyde is getting this. He's getting it from Joseph Smith, and Joseph Smith is getting it from the Hebrew prophets. And he's not mistaken. There are some who came out with books on the millennial Messiah and said it's a heresy and put their words above those of Joseph Smith. Go figure that. If you believe in the restoration of the prophet Joseph Smith, then you must also believe that Joseph Smith was a prophet. I have found nothing that Joseph Smith ever said that was false, that did not harmonize or, or agree with things that are in the scriptures. He is way above any, any other Latter-day prophet, in my view. Let's go into Messianic theology. I'm going to discuss a few paragraphs from my book that's coming out in a couple of months called Windows on the Prophecy of Isaiah. It's a book of literary tools. I've mentioned it. And this is only, these are only a few paragraphs on this subject because it was, it's too long to go into all of it. As all Messianic prophecies and their fulfillment are based on covenant patterns. You remember what it says about the great and abominable church in the Book of Mormon, that it has taken away many plain and precious parts, right? And what else did it say in the same breath? And many covenants of the Lord have they taken away. So, because those statements are in parallel, a synonymous parallel, it means that those plain and precious parts have to do with the covenants of the Lord, and vice versa. And well, where do we have those covenants? We have them in the temple, if we would understand them. We're going to be discussing more and more of those. We did a little bit last week about the fellowship of the suffering of Christ and what it means to be a proxy savior of the house of Israel. The Davidic covenant is key to understanding plain and precious parts. The Davidic covenant is what the sons of Mosiah operated under when they converted thousands of Lamanites. It is what saved Helaman's sons. The father-son relationship is an emperor-vassal relationship. The Davidic covenant and all the Hebrew covenants go back to emperor-vassal relationships of the ancient Near East. You mean we really have to dig all into all that ancient history? Yes, you do. Because it is so transparent. It makes it so clear. And it's beautiful. 
Moses took the trouble to do that. All the Hebrew prophets build upon that. And we're just going to ignore it? Why do Jews and Christians, it's important to gain a clear understanding of them or the idea of a Messiah can lead to confusion. And believe me, there's plenty of confusion out there. There are more precepts of men, I think, nowadays than there are actually truths of God to be had. And part of coming to this understanding is disabusing our minds of all these false precepts. Once you're indoctrinated in them, it's very hard to undo them. It's very hard to come out of it and completely readjust your thinking to what the scriptures are actually saying. Why do Jews and Christians, for example, and Nephi says the Jews understandeth the words of the prophets, right? And no one understands it like them unless they're taught off the man of the Jews. So aren't you going to give the Jews some respect just because they didn't accept Messiah, Christ? You're going to just, you know, reject them wholesale and not consider the things that they get right, which is the other, you know, 95%? Why do they retain such divergent messianic hopes? Jews anticipating a Messiah who obtains his people's divine protection or temporal salvation, that's the Latter-day David, a temporal Messiah. And Christians adhering solely to the idea of a spiritual Messiah, one who obtains his people's salvation from sin. Oh, so we're so into Christ, and we ought to be, that it's taking us way beyond where we should be going and excluding all the other messianic prophecies, which, of which there are many, and ignoring them to our own hurt. And taking those messianic prophecies and applying them all to Christ, ignoring, you know, the context in which, and taking things out of context or the setting, the end time setting, in which those events happen, not the time of Christ. In Isaiah's repeat scenario of ancient events, God's raising up a Davidic king, his end time servant, follows the type of his raising up King David in response to his people's need for divine protection. That occurs at a time when his people's enemies are imperiling their very existence, just as their enemies did anciently. Those were the days when the Philistines same word as Palestinians, I mentioned that, were bent on wiping Israel off the map. So what are we seeing today? A repeat scenario. So I think we're getting close to the time when the Jews will accept a David to be king over them, as Orson Hyde said in his dedicatory prayer, because the government is there already, and it is an independent state of Israel, fulfilling the rest of his, his uh, prayer. We have to look at the patterns of the past. How did, how, was, how did David come to kingship? Isn't this going to be the restitution of all things? You mean just some things, not all things? No, it's a restitution of all things. That includes the Davidic monarchy. The Davidic monarchy is part of the restitution of all things that happens before Christ comes, not after he comes. God's end-time servant, in other words, fulfills Jewish expectations of a temporal Messiah, one who answers for his people's disloyalties to Israel's God in the pattern of ancient Near Eastern emperor vassal covenants. The idea of a Christian Messiah, on the other hand, of a spiritual savior as vested in Jesus of Nazareth, has no precedent in the past that repeats itself in the end time. Jehovah or Jesus, this is something that the, the Jews never make this connection that their, own, that their Messiah is their own Lord Jehovah. Never occurred to them. 
that's why they were taken off guard. And what did Brigham Young say about the latter days? That the Gentiles would be just as mistaken about the second coming of Christ as the Jews were about his first coming. Why? Because we we're going to get a temple Messiah first. A John the Baptist or an Enoch who establishes a Zion to which the Lord can then come. And still this idea is threatening to some people. But it's part of the Lord's plan. So if you're going to fight it, you're fighting against Zion, against the Lord's plan. Jehovah Jesus doesn't come to do physical battle in wars with Israel's enemies in the pattern of King David. God's servant does. Nor is the role of redeeming God's people from their sins an end-time role. Rather, in the end-time context, Jehovah comes on the earth to reign as king of Zion after his servant has prepared a people to meet their God, as Moses attempted to do but failed. The end time is the first time that happens, where a people are prepared to meet their, their God, of the house of Israel. Enoch did it, but that, that was not the house of Israel. The Sinai covenant was the first stepping stone toward that goal. And all subsequent, subsequent covenants, covenant with David, were stepping stones toward reaching that goal. Davidic kings of the past typified the coming of Christ. That's why Jesus would be a son of David, not a son of Moses or Aaron. Because he, fitted that, he fit that mold of a Davidic king on the highest level of all Davidic kings. Jeremiah predicts a number of kings, end-time Davidic kings. In fact, it seems to me that all the 144,000 are such Davidic kings who rule and reign with Christ in the millennial age. And if not them, others who attain this, who make sure they're calling election. In the interim, Jehovah gives his servant the victory over his enemies as he did King David. So he's a warrior. He reconquers the earth from the Assyrian power. The Assyrians conquer the world by military force. They're alliance of nations from the north. Well, who conquers it back for the Lord? A servant does. Don't tell me Joseph Smith is going to come and do that or John the Revelator. They have already served their mortal ministries. They don't have to come back and do that. The Lord uses mortals to test them and try them to bring them up to higher spiritual levels. Just as he did in the past. There's no precedent for people coming back from the dead or to perform mortal missions on the earth, to go through another descent phase, which is part of mortality. Any descent phase is a mortal experience. Jesus' own descent phase was a mortal experience. But God always uses his servants, and through that means, and through the interaction of the good guys and the bad guys and different spiritual levels, he gets the job done and proves his servants and gives them an opportunity to grow spiritually so he can empower them so they too can become what he is. As a forerunner of Jehovah's coming to reign on the earth, a servant gathers and reunites Israel's tribes, builds the temple in Jerusalem to which Jehovah comes, and establishes the political kingdom of God on the earth over which Jehovah reigns. Each messianic individual, in other words, plays a separate but complementary role. The end-time context of Isaiah's prophecy as a whole 
that Isaiah's seven-part structure establishes, that's the structure that I mentioned earlier, determines that the servant's mission is an end-time mission. In fact, the whole context of Isaiah's prophecy is an end-time context. There's the historical context and there's an end-time context. It hasn't started yet. But with these blood moons coming on this year and next year, on, specifically on Jewish feast days, Passover Tabernacles, Passover Tabernacles, 2014 and 15. That's got to have meaning because the Lord tells us there'll be signs in the heavens. In the past when they've happened, they've been on major events in Jewish history. Two distinct phases in the servant's end time mission. A conditional or descent phase in which the servant answers to Israel's God for the disloyalties of his people under the terms of the Davidic covenant in the emperor vassal paradigm in order to obtain their divine protection when enemies threaten. And enemies are threatening and going to threaten more and more. They're not going to go away. And when it comes to a crunch, when the great and the Bible church gathers all its forces, then indeed the power of God is going to come down. And where does that start? With the servant. We'll, we'll read that. We'll, we'll see scriptures about that. And two, an unconditional or ascent phase in which the servant is crowned king, as was David by Israel's tribes, as was Hezekiah. They go through a descent phase, and when the people say, see that this person who's been appointed over them by a prophet of God is successful, is empowered of God. He, everything that he does is succeeds like Joseph in Egypt. They come to him and crown him. They of themselves crown him. David sets the precedent for that. And when Samuel anointed him king, the Spirit of God came upon him from that moment on. The first emphasizes the servant's servant phase, in which he fulfills the spiritual role of a proxy savior to God's people in the pattern of King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was a political king, but his proxy role of obtaining his people's physical protection from the surrounding Assyrian army of 185,000 men was a spiritual function. We discussed it last time and the price that he had to pay in his suffering to obtain it. In answering for his people's disloyalties to the emperor, or in this case to the Lord, who takes the role of the emperor. The second emphasizes his son phase in which he fulfills the physical role of reconquering the world from the Assyrian alliance in the pattern of King David's conquest of the ancient Near East and of Cyrus the Persian's conquest of the Babylonian Empire. Those are the precedents Isaiah has and therefore he uses them as types of the servant. David is a type and so is Cyrus, a type of the Lord's servant, his end time servant. The servant's proving loyal to Israel's God under all conditions in both his spiritual role as a proxy saver and his physical role as a world conqueror follows the pattern of ancient and recent emperor vassal covenants. While a vassal was known as the emperor's servant during the conditional phase of his covenant, after he proved loyal to the emperor under all conditions, the emperor adopted him unconditionally as his son. Where do we find that in Aldeus theology? In the temple endowment. Haven't you noticed? That's the oath and covenant the Father makes after we prove faithful in all circumstances.
This same transition from servanthood to sonship, moreover, applies to all end-time servants of God. I think we discussed how we quoted Paul last time, how we become sons of God in his image and likeness. Right? He spoke of the creature or the natural man and how it gives way to, the, to us becoming sons of God according to the spiritual man or woman. Part 3 of Isaiah's seven-part structure conjoining its two units of material into a single whole. Isaiah 9 through 12 and Isaiah 41 through 46. One dealing with the servant's son phase, the first one, they're not chronological, you see. The other, with his servant phase, means that these messianic prophecies are to be perceived as inseparable depictions of the same end-time individual. That accords with the emperor vassal covenants in general, in which the terms servant and son together, not separately, designate a vassal king who proves loyal to an emperor. And we have the example of Ahaz. But Ahaz went anywhere with his allegiance, certainly not toward the Lord, in 2 Kings 16.7. Here it is. At that time, Ritson, king of Syria, recovered Elat to Syria and drove the Jews from Elat. Ahaz is ruling over the Jews, the southern kingdom of Judah. And Ritson, king of Syria, had conjoined with the kings of Israel to invade Judea, and they wanted to make Judea a puppet state to them and establish a coalition against Assyria's encroachments upon the nations of the ancient Near East. So what does Ahaz do? Isaiah confronts him and says, trust in the Lord God. He'll take care of it because of the protection clause of the Davidic covenant. Dummy. And he didn't, you know. He, he said he trusted in the arm of flesh in the king of Assyria. So Ahaz sent messages to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. There it is, the legal terms of a vassal king to an emperor. Taken together, not separately, you can't separate them. One deals with his um, conditional phase, under which he proves loyal, has to prove loyal to the emperor. The other, after he's proven loyal to the emperor, the emperor adopts him as his son. I guess Ahaz tries to take the shortcut here. Wants to become the king's son already. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Assyria, out of the hand of the king of Israel, who have risen up against me. Because what's the emperor's job? To a loyal vassal is to protect him. He's the lord of hosts. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He rallies his surrounding armies of the other vassal states and addresses the mortal threat of one of his vassals. That's what Jehovah does. If we would only trust in him to do it, in our families, in our communities, in our nation. So Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of Jehovah, the consecrated treasures, and in the treasures of the king's house that his forefathers had accumulated, and sent it as a present or tribute to the king of Assyria, because all vassals had to pay tribute. That's why King Laman was so upset with King Lamoni, who had, did not come up to the feast, was once or twice a year, all the vassals come up to the emperor and bring their tribute monies. 
Lamoni's not coming meant he had rebelled against the emperor, King Laman. But King Lamoni was himself an Ishmaelite. He wasn't even a Lamanite because the emperors always put local rulers over the peoples whom they ruled. It was the land of Nephi where the Ishmaelites dwelt. And the king of Assyria hated him for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it and carried his people captive to Kir and he slew Retzin, the king of Assyria. King of Syria. So there's way more, but we'll just make that do for now. It is only in the light of these historical patterns of precedence messianic prophecies can properly be understood. Simply latching on to any messianic prophecy and applying it to Jesus regardless of its end time context, ignoring what the prophecy's words actually say, and neglecting its historical background merely creates stumbling blocks and generates confusion. And that's what people are doing now. That's why Isaiah says, he will try the peoples in a bridle of error, and with a civil falsehood he will sift them. There's way more falsehoods and, and error out there than there is truth. You really have to pay a price to find truth nowadays. But I assure you it's in Isaiah, and it'll speak to you, it'll empower you and liberate you. The idea of an end-time servant of Israel's God called David who reigns with him during the earth's millennial age of peace takes nothing away from the messianic mission of Jehovah or Jesus, the king of Zion. In fact, many other servants of God reign with him in that glorious age, all of whom follow the same pattern of serving God's people as kings and priests under the terms of the Davidic covenant. Notably, the 144,000 and many others they too, therefore, are anointed and endowed with God's Spirit. That's in Isaiah. And we'll discuss the 144,000 not next Thursday, but Thursday after, because we're going to spend two weeks on the servant. Next week will be specifically from Isaiah on the servant. Because Isaiah 7 Pilate's structure transforms the entire book of Isaiah into an end time scenario, as noted in which even biographical material typifies or foreshadows things that repeat themselves, what biographical material have we read thus far that repeats itself? King Hezekiah's scenario with the Assyrians laying siege to Jerusalem, right? That's biographical. That's, that's recording what actually happened in history. And that too is a type and shadow of the end time where the servant takes the place of Hezekiah. Isaiah's messianic prophecies primarily portray an end-time mission of God's servant, the end-time re-establishment of the Davidic monarchy, as typified by the establishment of the Davidic monarchy in the days of King David, applies solely to God's end-time servant and forms an integral part of the restoration or restitution of all things. That restoration is characterized by the series of ancient events that repeat themselves at the end of the world, precedes Jehovah's or Jesus' second coming, to reign on the earth and prepares the way before him. Jesus is not going to come and restore all things. All that has been is going to be restored and then he will add to it things that were not before when he comes. Because the earth is going from now, it, from now having its telestial glory to a terrestrial glory with all of its ascended powers and glories you know, that, that come with it. Here we also see that the restoration of all things is still future. DNC 86, 8 through 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord unto you, 
with whom the priesthood has continued through the lineage of your fathers. That's interesting, isn't it? Think about that. What does that mean? I'm not going to discuss it, but you can think about it. For ye are lawful heirs according to the flesh, and have been hid from the world with Christ in God. So there are certain lineages that are priesthood lineages that have come down from ancient times, and you can figure out whose lineages they might be. For ye are lawful heirs according to the flesh, etc. Therefore your life and the priesthood have remained and must needs remain through you and your lineage until the restoration of all things spoken by the mouth of all the holy prophets since the world began. And the restoration of all things includes paradise, because that was once upon the earth, or appears to have been on the earth. It includes overcoming death. That's what Isaiah predicts. He predicts both a paradisical glory and um, death being done away. Therefore, blessed are ye if ye continue in my goodness, a light unto the Gentiles. And someone in this class said, put it so well. He said, we seem to be more a light under a bushel rather than a light on top of a hill. A light unto the Gentiles, and through this priesthood, a Savior unto my people Israel, the Lord hath said it. Amen. Believe me, whatever the Lord says, you can trust in. Put your total faith in it. Don't just say, oh, that's interesting, and go on. Say, I want that. I want to be part of that. I'll pay any price for that. Sadly, as entire messianic contracts built up in people's minds on faulty interpretive foundations inherited from the dark ages of apostasy mislead the masses even to this day, it seems apparent that God's end-time servant and those servants of God who act as proxy saviors under the terms of the Davidic covenant in restoring his end-time people and preparing them to meet Jehovah Jesus at his coming must experience their descent phases of trials and afflictions at the hands of those very same misled masses who refuse to invest their time in analyzing Isaiah's and other messianic prophecies to determine for themselves what they actually say, but who instead are content to parrot back what they are led to believe they say. I think it's probably the, lo the longest sentence I wrote I've ever written. <laughs> but do you get it? Yeah. We talked about afflictions and trials last week. But where do they come from? They're usually from the most ignorant people. People on lower spiritual levels, right? Who have not bothered to do what you've done. And Satan will use them against you because he knows where you're, where you're at. This is going to raise up enemies against you. Such is the paradox of God's people's interpersonal relationships. It always has been that way on the earth. From the time of Moses, from the time before the flood, whenever, in any age, in Enoch's age, the enemies came against God's people in the book of Moses. Where did they come from? Well, they were former friends and associates, of course, those who did not listen to Enoch's message, but who were content to remain in their little comfort zones, or so they thought. Well, those comfort zones are not going to be so comfortable anymore for very long, I assure you. The end of the world is coming, and it is that very attitude of going back to your comfort zone that is going to bring it on. As we saw the first time in our first lecture, that is the apostasy of God's own people that brings on the worldwide destruction. That was the pattern in the past, and it's the pattern in the future. 
Such is the paradox of God's people's interpersonal relationships that those who are most vigilant for his word, as evidenced by their searching the scriptures to see whether those things are so, should suffer most at the hands of ecclesiastical brethren who to their own condemnation hold fast to popular but scripturally unsupported precepts of men. I love truth, don't you? <laughs> okay, so there are other prophecies besides Isaiah's about the servant. And mostly they refer to a David. That's the same guy. He also appears as David in Isaiah. And uh, we'll get to Isaiah's prophecies. So this is from Jeremiah. Woe to the pastors who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says Jehovah. Therefore thus says Jehovah, God of Israel, against the pastors who feed my people. Well, the word pastors in Hebrew is the same as shepherds. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. See, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, says Jehovah. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and will bring them again into their folds, and they will be faith fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they will fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, says Jehovah. Now take note of this context in which the Davidic king or servant or prince appears. That's the context. It, the context is a time when the pastors or the shepherds of the people are really abusing their privileges. And he ties it in also to the same situation anciently because they were scattered anciently because of the wickedness of the pastors of the people. Behold, the days come, says Jehovah, that I will raise up to David a righteous branch and a king will reign and prosper and perform judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now notice this is the same chapter Jeremiah 23, 1 through 8, and now um, verses 5 through 8. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely, and this is the name by which he shall be called. Jehovah is our righteousness. Now you have to realize that the King James has capitalized that as if Jehovah is our righteousness refers to Jesus as the Messiah. But the Hebrew has no capital letters. Hebrew doesn't have capital letters. So the, the King James is putting its own spin on it and making it into a prophecy of Christ, which is an interpretation. It's not saying what it says. And why would Jehovah be called, himself be called, Jehovah is our righteousness? Jehovah doesn't call himself Jehovah is our righteousness. But kings in Israel did. Like Zedekiah, Jehovah is my righteousness. Um, Sadok, righteous. All the Jebusite kings and those who came after them have that element of righteousness in their names. Melchizedek, Melchizedek, my king is righteous. King is righteousness. Therefore, see the days come, says Jehovah, that they will no more say, Jehovah lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but Jehovah lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all countries where I had driven them, and they will dwell in their own land. That's the context of the latter-day David's mission. 
it's that time and that gathering and that salvation or conversion of the house of Israel happens before the coming of Christ because they have to establish Zion to which the Lord can then come. The Book of Mormon shows clearly that we don't establish Zion. They do, but we help them establish it. Our job as kings and queens of the Gentiles, which we'll discuss two lectures from now, is to help the house of Israel, the Jews, ten tribes, and Lehi's descendants to establish Zion. Then the Lord can come. Until then, he won't come. He can't come. He can come individually to you and I if we invite him. Don't people read this? Don't they connect it up with other things where prophets talk about this? Will they always be taking things out of context and running with whatever wild interpretation comes into their heads? Jeremiah 30. The word that came to Jeremiah from Jehovah saying, Thus is Jehovah God of Israel. Write all the words I have spoken to you in a book or a scroll. For see, the days come, says Jehovah, that I will bring back the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, says Jehovah, and I will cause them to return to the land I gave their fathers, and they will possess it. These are the words Jehovah spake concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus says Jehovah, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. And now, and see, whether a man travails with child. You know, don't you see the, the bottom falling out of the situation in the world today, out of politics and the economy and, and what's, on a, you know, what's happening in politics is happening in ecclesiastical realms. In Isaiah, the ecclesiastical and political are always on a par. Isaiah 28 shows that clearly. There's a collusion between the two. And us now and see whether a man travails with child. So people are going to go into the birth pangs of the Messiah, which is a prelude to the coming of a, of a savior or a deliverer. That was the case with Moses in Egypt when the Israelites were serving in hard bondage. It was the case with King Hezekiah, which we discussed last week. Why then do I see every man with his hands upon his loins like a woman in labor and all faces turned pallid? Alas, for that day is great, so great that there is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Those who turn to the Lord, that is. And in an end time situation, it's only individuals who do that. It's never en masse. It's a man here and a man there, and woman. For shall come to pass in that day, says Jehovah of hosts, the Lord of hosts in Hebrew is actually Jehovah of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck and will burst your bonds and strangers will no more serve themselves of him. What strangers? Well, who has put us into bondage? Well, the political and ecclesiastical both do it. But they will serve Jehovah their God and David their king, whom I will raise up to them. Therefore, fear not, my servant Jacob, says Jehovah. Remember, Jacob is the house of Israel. In their still lost and fallen state. Jews, Lamanites, and ten tribes, by definition, throughout the Book of Mormon, are the house of Israel. We're not called house of Israel in the Book of Mormon. Only later when we were numbered among them after we had done the job of saving them. Then we were numbered among them. Nor be dismayed, O Israel. This is the Jacob-Israel category in Isaiah also. 
For see, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity, and Jacob will return and be at rest and quiet, and none shall make him afraid. That's when they inherit lands of promise that are perpetual lands of promise throughout the millennial age. But first, we have to get untangled from all these bonds. And how do these bonds happen to us? Well, because of our collective guilt. They're covenant curses. Bondage is a covenant curse. But individuals, for, for individuals, the Lord provides a way of escape. But still, we suffer from the collective curse that comes upon everybody in this land for a time. But we can use it to rise higher above it. We can rise above that adversity and use it to back up our intercession as, with God as proxy saviors for those who are near and dear to us. Jeremiah 33, Behold, the days come, says Jehovah, that I will perform, perform that good thing which I have promised the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time will I cause a branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he will perform justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah shall be saved, and Jerusalem dwells safely. Well, that hasn't happened yet. That didn't come with the restoration of the gospel. It's still to happen. And this is the name by which she shall be called. That is, the woman Zion. Jehovah is our righteousness. It's the same name that earlier the King James tried to make us believe was the name of Messiah. And this is the principle of the one and the many. Ezekiel 34. The word of Jehovah came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Aha, here we see them again. What's with the shepherds? Prophesy and say to them, Thus said the Lord, Jehovah, to the shepherds, or pastors, same word, Woe to the shepherds of Israel that feed themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and you clothe yourselves with the wool. You kill those that are fed, but you don't feed the flock. The disease you haven't strengthened, nor have you healed what was sick, nor bound up the broken, but you have brought back what was, nor have you brought back what was driven away, nor sought that which was lost, but with force and cruelty have you ruled them. And they were scattered because there was no shepherd, no real shepherd. And being scattered, they became meat for all the beasts of the field. In other words, the beast of the field is a, is a metaphor for for non-believers. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yea, my flock was scattered on all the face of the earth and no one searches or seeks after them. So we're going to get rid of you and you can just, we're just going to abandon you to your fate. You deserve it. That's the attitude. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of Jehovah. As I live, says the Lord Jehovah, surely because my flock has become a prey and become meat for every beast of the field, because there is no shepherd, nor did the shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and not my flock. Therefore, O you shepherds, hear the word of Jehovah. Thus says the Lord Jehovah, See, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand, and cause them to cease from feeding the flock. Nor shall the shepherds feed themselves any more, for I will deliver my flock from their mouth, that they may not be meat for them. They have a good thing going, don't they? I knew some shepherds like that in, in New Zealand where I was raised. I worked on a sheep, ra sheep station and we had lamb for breakfast, lunch and dinner. <laughs> I was the cook, so I should know. <laughs> I was in the South Island. It was wonderful. 
I think I've lived a number of different lives in this, er in this world so far. <laughs> for thus is the Lord Jehovah. See, I myself would search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock in the days he is among his sheep, that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them out of all the places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. In other words, the day of the descent phase of the people who are being victimized. That's the, the time of their trials and afflictions. And where are those afflictions coming from? As I mentioned earlier, basically from those who haven't done their homework, who have these precepts of men, who don't care to learn anymore, who say, we have received the word of God, we need no more of the word of God, and who end up denying Christ in the end, as we discussed the other day in 2 Nephi 28, the day of the bad news. And I will bring them out from among the people and gather them from all the countries. And I will bring them into their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and all the inhabited places of the land. When does he do that? The Book of Mormon is full of that. Picking up from Isaiah, because the Book of Mormon, in predicting the end time, always uses Isaiah as a basis, as a jumping off point. In Isaiah, the new exodus of God's people from the four directions of the earth happens before the coming of Jehovah to reign upon the earth, or before the coming of Christ. They come in an exodus, they wander in the wilderness, they come to Zion and receive lands of promise, and then the Lord comes, when they are ready. I will feed them in a goodly pasture upon the mountains of Israel. Now, mountains is, can be a metaphor for nations, as it is in Isaiah, and all throughout the prophets, in fact. Upon the mountains of Israel shall be their fold. They sh there they shall lie down in a goodly fold, in a rich pasture. They will feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and cause them to lie down, says the Lord Jehovah. I will seek that which was lost and bring back the, that which was driven away. I will bind up what was broken and strengthen what was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will feed them with justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord Jehovah, See, I will judge between cattle and cattle, between rams and he-goats. Not only the same herd, you know. We may be one herd right now, but he's going to... As I mentioned, it's all about individuals. And individuals are on different spiritual levels. So you go here and you go there. That's what they do on farms. Does it seem a small matter to you to have eaten up the good pasture? Must you also tread down with your feet the remaining pastures? muddying the waters, so to speak? Or have you drunk of the deep waters and also polluted the rest with your feet? As for my flock, they eat what you have trodden down with your feet, and they drink what you have polluted with your feet. Remember Isaiah 28, where what are we expected to eat? Vomit. Half-digested material that's regurgitated for the people to swallow. I mean, how more graphic does it get than that? That's Isaiah for you. But it, that's the bad news. I also mentioned he has the greatest news that, that's out there. But we have to deal with the bad news first. We can't just assume things that just because we're this or we're that, we're going to inherit all those great glories, you know. That's wishful thinking. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Jehovah, to them, See, I myself will judge between the fat and lean cattle. Because you have thrust them with side and shoulder and pushed all the disease with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. Therefore I will save my flock and they will no more be a prey. I will judge between cattle and cattle. I will set up one shepherd over them 
and he will feed them, my servant David. He will feed them, and he will be their shepherds. I, Jehovah, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, Jehovah, have spoken it. So, if Jesus is Jehovah, then he's not the David, right? He's Jehovah, and David is the servant or the prince. I mean, it just goes on and on. It's everywhere. Unless you're totally blind, you can't see it. Ezekiel 37. Here's one of the precepts of men that you asked for the other day. The word of Jehovah came again to me, saying, Moreover, son of man, take one stick. Actually, the Hebrew says etz, which is the word for tree. Take one tree, and if you go back to the allegory of the olive trees, which is the most popular one among the prophets, what do they do in the ancient Near East? Because olive trees are so slow growing, they will put two trees, young trees together, or two grafts upon a stem, and they grow together. So it's, and you go to the Middle East today, among the olive trees, the olive orchards of the Arabs, and you see that most trees have these two main trunks. So it's a beautiful symbolism of what we're going to read now. And take another tree, well, for Judah and for the people of Israel, his companions. Not all the tribes, because Judah is mainly of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. The southern kingdom, those were the three main tribes. But there were others who joined them, like Lehi and Ishmael, who, who came from Manasseh, from the smattering of all the other tribes among the Jews. But the ten tribes are mostly, mostly kept to themselves in the northern kingdom. Then take another stick and write on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, Ephraim was always the leading tribe of the northern kingdom. It was also the birthright tribe, but seldom, has ever, seldom ever has Ephraim fulfilled his birthright role, but in the end time, he will do it. And for all the house of Israel, his companions, and join them to one another into one stick or tree. The Hebrew word is not stick. The Hebrew word for stick is makel. Makel is, is stick. Tree is, is, it's is the word, it's, it's tree or wood, it can also be wood. And they will become one in your hand. And when the people of your nation speak to thee saying, won't you show us what you mean by this? Say to them, thus is the Lord Jehovah. Well, we know what that means, don't we? It's the Bible and the Book of Mormon, dummy. You know, you bring them together and then something magic happens. Well, has it? Uh, no, it hasn't. It hasn't happened. In fact, in the Book of Mormon it says, when two nations flow together, their testimonies will flow together. It's the, it's the opposite. So, so listen to what his interpretation is, will you? When the people of your nation speak to thee saying, won't you show us what this means? Say to them, Thus is the Lord Jehovah. See, I will take the tree of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his fellows, the ten tribes, and will put them with him, with the stick of Judah, with him. With another stick? No, with a person or a people. With the stick of Judah, or with the tree of Judah, and will make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. And the trees on which you write... So if it's wood that we want to translate the word et as, then you could say, well, they could be wooden tablets, possibly. 
and the sticks or trees on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Now we have a type and shadow of this when David was made king, which people also ignore. First David ruled over the house of Judah for seven years. When he was making such a great success of it, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom came to him and said, rule over us also. And he ruled over both nations, or both houses of Israel, for another 33 years, 40 years total. So there, under David, you have the type of two trees coming together. What a perfect symbolism is the olive tree with its two main trunks. Say to them, Thus says the Lord Jehovah, See, I will take the children of Israel. This is the part nobody seems to read. I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen where they have gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all, and they will no more be two nations, nor will they be divided into two kingdoms anymore at all. The two trunks are going to grow together and become one tree. The two houses of Israel are going to come together in the hand of a latter-day David. And Ezekiel is the type of it. He's showing you the imagery ahead of time. The two houses of Israel have never come together since they were separated in Solomon's day or after Solomon's day. That was after King David, they separated again. So who's going to bring them together? Ezekiel is going to come back from the dead and get this stick and another stick? No. And one king will be king to them all. And there will no more be two nations, nor will they be divided into two kingdoms anymore at all. Isaiah talks about that in chapter 11. We'll get to that. Nor will they defile themselves anymore with their idols or their detestable things which have caused the division in the first place, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their habitations in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. So shall they become my people and I will be their God. And when they are, then he comes to reign among them. And David, my servant, will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and perform them. And they will dwell in the land I gave Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers dwelt. They will dwell therein, they and their children, and their children's children forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant, and I will place them and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. This is repeating what happened in King David's day. It's reestablishing what happened in King David's day when David was king over Israel, part of the restitution of all things. It's not the spiritual Messiah here, it's the temporal Messiah. But you know that when Christ comes, the kingdom is given into his hands because he is king over us all including over the latter-day David and other latter-day Davids that will rule with him. And what is this covenant of peace, an everlasting covenant? What is an everlasting covenant? I told you last time, I think. It's an unconditional covenant. Any covenant that's forever or is a forever or everlasting covenant or something that is everlasting has reached the point where it becomes unconditional. When does something become unconditional? when the parties to the covenant have remained faithful under all circumstances and proven loyal to the Lord under all conditions, through trials and afflictions and everything. 
then your covenant with God becomes unconditional and you become a son or daughter, not just a servant or handmaiden. And I will place them and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst. Jehovah's sanctuary. The king is going to be ruling over them all the time throughout the millennial age, but Jehovah doesn't spend time in his temple throughout the millennial age. Joseph Smith said, they will be thrown in his temple on which he will at times sit. He's not confined. Now Isaiah says it in chapter 66. He's not confined to a house on earth. The heavens are his throne. The earth is his footstool, as Isaiah says. But others will be ruling upon the earth with him, and he will be giving direction to them. My tabernacle or sanctuary shall also be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's the covenant formula. You know that, right? Those are the people with whom he covenants. His people, their God. When he says these people or this people, he's dissociating himself from them because they're not keeping his, the terms of the covenant, his commandments. And the heathen will know that I, Jehovah, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary will be in their midst forevermore. His sanctuary will be there forevermore. But that doesn't mean, like I said, that he sits on his throne there 24-7. Amos. The people of Israel will abide many days without a king and without a prince, without a sacrifice, without an image, without an ephod, without teraphim. And after that shall the people of Israel return and seek Jehovah their God and David their king. Two separate individuals. I mean, we do that trying to convince Christianity that the Father and the Son are two different individuals. Well, so is Jehovah and the servant. And they will fear Jehovah and his goodness in the end time. Now, the reason we are discussing these scriptures today because there are no dreams, visions, and near-death experiences of the servant. There was a third of what Spencer saw that was hidden from his memory. The Lord has deliberately withheld it from the people. Why? Because it's going to be a test. This is the same as the coming of Christ was a test. The coming of Joseph Smith was a test. The coming of King David was a test. Moses. Every messianic individual always becomes a trial to the people to see where their, their leanings lie. And this is Jesus speaking to the Nephites. So let's pay attention. How can all ye house of Israel? He's speaking to the Nephites, but he includes the ten tribes and uh, the Jews. All ye that are broken off and are driven out because of the wickedness of the pastors of my people. He's quoting Isaiah 49 here. When Nephi quotes Isaiah 48 and 49, instead of saying what he wants to say, He's introducing the servant. But what does Nephi add to the first part of chapter 49? This. Talking about the pastors again. Because of the wickedness of the pastors of his people. All ye that are broken off and are scattered abroad, who are of my people, O house of Israel. Then, verse 1 of Isaiah 49 starts. So Nephi has added a preface to Isaiah 49. It ties in with what we saw in Jeremiah, 
and in Ezekiel. And what does Jesus talk about here? His servant. Jesus is the only one who explicitly talks about his servant and interprets it for us. The others can't do that because they're forbidden. They're not supposed to reveal things that the Lord once kept hidden. In fact, the servant says it. Listen a while unto me, hearken, O ye people from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother. He has mention of my name. Now the Hebrew means from before the womb and from before the bowels of the mother. The word from has that connotation in Hebrew. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He hid me. He may be a polished shaft in a quiver. He has kept me secret. Well, this is the King James translation. So he's hidden from the world for a specific reason so that the Lord can test his people thereby so that individuals who have sought the Lord's word to see whether those things are so, who have searched the scriptures diligently, will recognize him, and the others, it'll just totally freak them out. They won't be able to stand him. And that's what Isaiah predicts, which we'll discuss next time. They will try to get rid of him, and they will persecute him, and eventually mar him beyond human likeness. And that is his descent phase that he has to go through to answer for the disloyalties of God's people to the emperor. So the context in which the servant appears, or the David, is the context of the shepherds abusing their stewardships. That is the context. And the context is also the restoration of the house of Israel. The natural lineages of the house of Israel. That's also in Jacob 5. We'll get to that. Revelation 12. There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. In Isaiah, that would be the woman Zion. I mean, the real people of Zion, not just in name. And the moon under her feet, in other words, God's elect. And upon her head, a crown of 12 stars. Otherwise, she wouldn't have any crown like that. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, pain to be delivered. This is the birth pangs of the Messiah. In the end time, which John's revelation is about what John saw on the day of the Lord. And what is the day of the Lord in the Hebrew prophets? It's the day of Jehovah. It's the great world time, time of the world judgments of the wicked. The day of the Lord is not a Sunday, some have supposed. He was having, seeing things on a Sunday. Well, that'd be nice, but... Um, <laughs> No, the day of the Lord is, you look through any of the scriptures of the prophets, it's, it's the great and dreadful day of the Lord. It's the time when Israel apostatizes and individuals repent and become the new nation of Zion and the Lord destroys, cleanses the earth, destroys the wicked. And so, as Moses was a deliverer and King Hezekiah, so there was an end time deliverer. And it's not Christ. Christ did his thing in the meridian of time by atoning for the world's transgressions, for, you, for yours and mine. And there appeared a wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to be delivered to devour her child 
as soon as it was born. Now you have to understand that the dragon is thrown from heaven to the earth and becomes a person on the earth. He appears in Ezekiel. Ezekiel calls him Pharaoh, king of Egypt, thou great dragon. You have to interpret the book of Revelation by going back to the imagery in the Hebrew prophets. He also appears in the book of Isaiah, as we'll see. The dragon is a person on the earth, and if he's king of Egypt, or the end-time pharaoh, then we have a good guess of who it is, because once we know what Egypt is a code name of, right, then we know who the pharaoh is. It's that simple. So where did he come from? Well, he has a prehistory. Guess where, you know? This is the back story right here. And seven crowns. So he was an exalted being too. And the, his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, stars being a metaphor for sons of God, and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to be delivered to devour her child as soon as it was born, as soon as it was born in the end time. And she brought forth a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her children or child was caught up to God and to his throne. Well, Jesus doesn't come to rule the earth with a rod of iron. He has emissaries to do that. When you read about the servant in Isaiah, that's what he does. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God that they might feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days, three and a half years. That's also in Daniel. Isaiah talks about three years, but that could be part of the three and a half years. So the woman who personifies God's elect, she doesn't need to go through the disasters and covenant curses of the end time. When they begin, she travails with child. When they begin, she gives birth to the deliverer. The deliverer takes her in a journey to the wilderness. That's in Isaiah. So what Spencer sees in his vision was something that was confined to his role in things. And I asked him, well, weren't you aware of people in the wilderness, you know, who are okay? He said, yeah, but it didn't concern him. It's not what he was focused on. These people don't have to go through covenant curses of, you know, earthquakes and invasion by enemies and plagues. Those are covenant curses. They don't come upon the elect of God. Remember the protection clause of the Lord's covenant. Start believing in it. It works. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought and prevailed not, nor was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. Well, guess who's deceiving the whole world right now? You know? Everything that comes out of his mouth is a lie. Or it's twisted in such a way, or a big pretense. No. Don't believe the media, the public media, the liberal media. It's been bought out. Who deceived the whole world. He was cast out to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So he has his hordes. He has his emissaries. His, uh, you know, those who are helping to promote his cause. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God. So when these bad things happen, it's also the time 
when the good things happen. So that's something to look forward to. Remember how we said it's all good? For the accuser of our brethren has been cast down, we accused them before our Lord day and night. You're going to see horrendous opposition from these sources. It hasn't started yet. Not on the scale that it's going to be. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. Like King Hezekiah did not love his life unto death, nor did Joseph Smith, nor did Jesus. But if we have to die, but if not, remember, we're willing to die and be proxy saviors for those over whom we have stewardship. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows he has but a short time. Well, how quickly are they implementing all of their designs already? You know, it's, I mean, every day it's something going on. Something you and I mostly don't know about. It was done behind closed doors. Before you know it, suddenly this is law, and that's law. And when the dragon saw that he was cast out to the earth, he persecuted the woman who brought forth the male child. Well, this is like David and Goliath. This is like Horace and Seth. This is like Christ and Caiaphas. There's always a direct enemy. And the woman, to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and a time and a half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Well, the flood is, is a metaphor of armies. It's in Isaiah as such. The king of Assyria's army comes like a flood and invades all the lands. It's the new flood of the end time. The conquest of the world by the Assyrian hosts. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the flood the dragon had cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was angry with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and who have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Who are they? Well, not the elect. Not those who went into the wilderness. But the others. Maybe the ones Spencer sees in his scenario. Isaiah 66 has the same scenario. Before she's in labor, because the elect of God don't have to go through it. Yes, they come under collective punishments in the nation, but only for a short time. Before she's in labor, she gives birth. Before her ordeal overtakes her, she delivers a son. And that's not Christ. It's an end time scenario, and that's the servant. The son, remember? Who has heard the like? Who has seen such things? Can the earth labor but a day and a nation be born at once? For as soon as she was in labor, Zion gave birth to her children. Okay, so what's going on here? So first she goes into a time of testing and trial. Those are the birth pangs of the Messiah. We're getting flack from our enemies. We're getting flack from, as we mentioned earlier, from those those on lesser spiritual levels who find occasion against us. And so we plead for a savior, and we get one. We'll read that in Isaiah chapter 19. Very explicitly there. And 
when the Savior is born, like Moses, then what happens? Moses delivers the nation. That's what his job is. He delivers the Israelites out of Egypt. Well, the servant delivers Israel out of bondage in Babylon. And Isaiah defines Babylon as the world at large, in its wicked state, on the eve of its destruction. So what's the nation born in a day? In a day? That's, that's the Zion that forms through the instrumentality of the servant, the latter-day Enoch. What day is that? The day of judgment, when the judgments of God are coming upon the earth. And it has a twofold aspect, the destruction of the wicked and the deliverance of the righteous. They're both going on at the same time. Like the angels coming to Lot and taking him out of Sodom right when the destruction is coming in. At that very instant, they strong arm him out of there. All right, well, what's this next line about? Verse 9, shall I bring to a crisis and not bring on birth, says Jehovah? When it is I who caused the birth, shall I hinder it, says your God? Because there are some out there saying, oh, that's not of God. This is not right. What do you guys, who, what do you guys think you are? And they're going to fight it, and they're going to deny Christ, as you read in 2 Nephi 28. And they're going to join the heart of Babylon, because that's in Isaiah that the woman Babylon, namely the great and abominable church in the Book of Mormon, consists of all those who are not Zion. And so even God's people who apostatize become part of, Isaiah shows it in his literary structures, become part of the heart of Babylon. The reason Nephi does not say the heart of Babylon, as John does in the Book of Revelation, and as Isaiah does, is because in his day, Babylon was still, in Nephi's day, Babylon was still a political reality. Babylon was still a political kingdom or empire. So he resorts to imagery, the great and Babylon church, who is a whore. And Babylon is a whore. It's the same entity. Get it? And so those in Babylon or the apostates among us are saying, oh no, this is not a God. This guy is not anybody, a servant. And those people who follow him, are not any, you know, they're not of us. So let's persecute them. And so there, there you get the descent phases, followed by ascent phases. And then what happens to these guys who, who are doing that, who are opposing it? And, and when you read Isaiah 52, the kings who, and queens who listen up to the servant hear things they've never heard before. And they consider things that they've never spoken to them. And what are those new things? It's a whole different paradigm now that they have to adjust to and accept in order to fulfill their roles as proxy saviors, in order to fulfill their roles as birthright tribe, as saviors of the house of Israel, as Joseph was to his brethren. So it devolves on us to do so. But who's doing that? Are we doing it today? No. What are we doing today? Trying to study and learn, but... No, no, no. I mean, what are we doing today? What? Let me give you a little clue here. I mean, Isaiah 5.19 talks about those who, who say, Oh, let the Lord hasten his work that we may see, and so forth. Read it, Isaiah uh, 5.19. What is the work? By definition, what is the work? It's the restoration of the house of Israel. The greater marvelous work, by definition, in the Book of Mormon and in Isaiah, is the restoration of the house of Israel. 
hasn't happened yet. In relation to it, Joseph Smith's um, restoring the fullness of the gospel in his day and the priesthood is called the beginning or the commencement or the foundation of the greater marvelous work, not the work itself. That is in my book, The Last Days, which was, the, which was a big problem at one time for me personally. But there it is. It has more references in it than any other book, one of my books. And you can follow all the references, and it's what the scriptures are saying. And I also give all-day lectures on it, a symposium on it, uh, on um, the great marvelous work or all the other events that Isaiah predicts that are, in the, that are um, in the Book of Mormon. Spencer's vision does not include the gathering of the righteous to go into the wilderness to escape the earthquakes and the invasion by enemies and the plagues. No. That was... No, that, that follows on the heels of what he sees of the judgments coming. The Carson scenario and the establishment of the New Jerusalem, when they get to the New Jerusalem, there are already people there. Who are they? Yeah, DNC 103, 15 through 20 talks about one likened to Moses leading the saints back to Jackson County. So there, there's a part of it. Out of bondage. And that ties right in with Isaiah. But, you know, there's more than one place. There's the whole earth. And so there's 144,000 doing that. But you'll know, like, I, like Nephi says, in the days that they shall be fulfilled, the prophecy of Isaiah will know of a surety. So right now, we could try to piece that scenario together and we might do a pretty good job of it. But let's not go there. Let's not try to figure it all out. Let's just learn what it says so that when it happens, it will know. That's why I've expressed cautions. We don't judge anybody. We stay with the program because it's the Lord's program. We don't go there. We don't talk about future roles, all that stuff. We stay with what's now. Otherwise, you get out in left field before you know it. You know. Um, the temple in Jerusalem, why would it be, could it be a Levitical temple? Why would it be confined to a Levitical priesthood? Because the elect of God all have the priesthood, the Melchizedek priesthood. And the whole intent is so that we might continue to go up the spiritual ladder and, and ascend from being sons and servants in Isaiah to, to seraphim translated state. And that goes on and on and on. It happened in Enoch's day. So I wouldn't see, if you can't show it, don't say it. So There might be an interesting thing that's part of the restoration or restitution of all things. Was even Joseph Smith sacrificed a lamb at the Kirtland Temple dedication. So there may be some interim arrangement, you know. So as for the sequence in which that temple is built, seeking of, of events, it seems as if the one in the New Jerusalem is built before the one in the Old Jerusalem. But Spencer did tell me that he saw a parallel scenario going on over there to the one here, where John the Revelator is mentioned, eats the book in its submission for him to perform to all nations, kings, and tongues of people. Well, he's been doing that. So have the three Nephites been doing that. And others on a translated level. And um, Spencer sees Enoch's city coming back and doing it. So 
It's the mission of all the 144,000, and he's a type. I wouldn't put any more on that than that. He's already translated. The servant is going to be marred. You can't mar a translated being. You know, you can't. It's his descent phase. It's, he's nigh unto death like King Hezekiah to pay the price for his people's disloyalties to their emperor in order to win the emperor's protection of his people. It's like Isaiah interceding with the Lord on a higher level than King Hezekiah. And but it's all part of the intercessory, um, intercessory uh, roles that are being fulfilled at that time on different spiritual levels. And without all those different levels performing their spiritual roles, this would not be happening. The coming of the Lord couldn't happen. It's a beautiful program. It's given us of the Lord. It's a compression of time. The Lord is hastening his work. It's compressed. It's shortened. The time is shortened. And everybody's given an opportunity to ascend to the next spiritual level. How beautiful is that? Through wading through these, these hor horrific circumstances. It's like a pressure cooker. And things happen on a much more quickened scale. But we make it. You know, we get there. Thankfully, we thank God, as he says, Spencer, even for trials. And we, we accept them joyfully even. Because we know what they're doing to us. They are, first of all, cleansing us of our iniquities, of our generational stuff. Not just to mention our own sins and transgressions. And they sanctify us on ever higher levels. And Jesus too. I mean, think about it. Luke says... In Luke, he says, I do miracles today and cast out devils today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Perfected by what? By his atonement. By going through the atonement, he was perfected on a higher level than he was before. Yes, he was perfect so he could be a lamb of God without blemish, and so he could atone for our transgressions. And he tells the people in Palestine, or the apostles, be ye therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. How can you be perfect as he is perfect without becoming a heavenly father? How can you? As he is perfect? And what does he tell the Nephites? After his resurrection, after the atonement, be ye therefore perfect as I and your Father in heaven are perfect. He includes himself in that perfection now because that was the third day when he went through the atonement. That's a higher perfection. That enabled him to ascend the throne of his father. So go figure all that out. You know, I mean, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful, what I call a paradigmatic hierarchy. <laughs> it's a funny term, but it's a hierarchy, you know, spiritual levels and it's paradigmatic why because those lower emulate ones above and they're also ministered to by ones above and they themselves are emulated by those below them and they minister to those below them and in the process of all of us doing that and the interaction between the different spiritual levels we ascend higher it's it's in the spirit spirit realm and in the physical realm DNC 76, the angels minister from the celestial through the terrestrial to the celestial. But it says in the Bible that 
once the prophet Nathan alerted him to the fact that he was that one, using the imagery of the man who had lots of sheep, and, and, and there was another man who only had one sheep, and, uh, and the one who had lots of sheep killed the man who had only one sheep and took his only sheep. And David says, well, where is this guy? I'll take care of him. And what does Nathan tell him? Thou out the man. You're, you're the guy. Put in colloquial English. And so they, then David repents in sackcloth and ashes. He really realizes what he's done. Which shows you that sometimes when we're in error, it's like an altered state. That's why Jesus says concerning temptation, beware lest you enter into temptation. Watch and pray always, lest you enter into temptation. Because the moment you do, in little ways, it gets bigger and bigger. Before you know it, you're in this altered state where you don't realize that you're the transgressor. And that's the case with most transgressors. They think they're good. They think they've got it right. And they're the ones that are worst, the worst sometimes. And so it was taken from his memory. It was, to me, it seems like it was his great final test he was, he was just uh, preempting things. It could have all worked out. Who knows? You know, Bathsheba gave birth to a Solomon. So, and Christ came from that lineage. So there was something there, important, but he jumped the gun. He did something that he should not have done. And that should be a lesson to all of us, to anyone here who is contemplating any such thing. So... I mean, the Lord really respects nuptials, nuptial marriage, conjugal relationships. To go there is, is bad news for us. So, so then it says of David that the Lord forgave him. And you have to realize that after he went through weeping and distress and beating himself up through extreme guilt, his soul would go to hell and pay for what he did because Christ had already atoned for him. Now he had to do it himself. And, but would not leave his soul in hell. So being forgiven would get him to a saved state, but not, a, but not an exalted state again. To be forgiven is to regain your salvation. But salvation and exaltation are two different things. Salvation gets, to a, gets you to a terrestrial state. You're no longer telestial. Exaltation gets, to, gets you to a celestial state. But I have no qualms about the idea that, in spite of what some say with authority, that who are not the prophet, that uh, nothing can be done about it. And you go for, through, out in eternity. You cannot ascend any further. That's not in the scriptures. To me, that's a precept of men that have crept into our thinking. Okay, we'll end it there. This concludes Lecture 3, Identifying God's End Time Servant. Be sure to visit IsaiahExplained.com as well as IsaiahInstitute.com to learn more about Isaiah with Dr. Avraham Giliadi.